think with me this morning, ponder if you have ever met somebody that is blissfully ignorant to their own reality. Right? You know, you know kind of what I'm talking about. Take, for example, the smelly person in your life. We all have one. Those who, as you approach them, the hairs in your nose start to singe. Those who seem to be unaware of modern advancements, such as deodorant and soap. Right? Now, the interesting thing is these types of people evidently, seemingly, don't even realize their own plight. They've gone nose blind to the truth, completely unaware of the state they are in. And if you don't know anyone like this, you are the one. <laughs> I just helped somebody. You know, also consider with me people who can't sing. We've all heard them perhaps on one of those singing competitions on TV, perhaps in a church service somewhere. And by the way, no reference whatsoever to our team. Haven't they done a wonderful job? I'm just having fun this morning. <laughs> but maybe, you know, we've been in church before and they take the mic or one of the mics and it's the people that can't carry a tune in a bucket. Those that you wish would sing so low, so low that nobody could hear them. Those with voices so shrill, mirrors everywhere get nervous. You'll get that one later, maybe. You see, their problem is that one day their mother told them that they were gifted and they have been living under that illusion ever since. And to be clear, I am completely in favor of obeying the scripture and making a joyful noise unto the Lord, regardless of pitch or tone I'm just suggesting that you don't need to do it in a microphone if that happens to be you. And can I get a witness? Some people are nervous here this morning. I'm just saying you don't need to be in the choir. You can serve somewhere else. That's fine. Just, you know, you can't sing. I'm sorry. Others around these types of people, they often recognize the problem so easily, but the culprits, they, they carry on as if everything is okay, and it's just not, right? They say that ignorance is bliss, and this is true, but ignorance is still ignorance, and ignorance can get you into trouble. If you've ever taken driving, the driving course, you know, driver's ed, they will tell you that if you get pulled over by the police and you claim ignorance as your excuse as to why you violated the law. You say, oh, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know that red meant stop. If you claim ignorance as your excuse, it's not valid, and they can still give you a warning, write you up, make you pay a fine, because ignorance can get you into trouble. And, and can I just submit this morning that what ignorant people need are really good friends, because your real friends are ones that don't let you walk around in these predicaments. A real friend will say, hey, bro, this is called deodorant. You need it. Put it on now. A real friend will say, hey, sis, I hear they're looking for volunteers in the media booth. You don't need the microphone. Go volunteer there instead. Everyone's nervous about the singers. I'm not talking about any of the singers this weekend. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm having fun. 
But if you've got a big, ripe, juicy pimple right in the middle of your forehead and it's about to blow, you need a good friend to come alongside and say, hey man, you need to take care of that ASAP. That's what friends are for. Guys, when your zipper is flying south for the winter, you need a good friend. You need a good friend. You got boogers hanging out of your nose. You got broccoli smack dab in the middle of your two front teeth. You need somebody in your life that is not afraid to tell you about it. Frankly, this is how you measure the depth of a friendship, at least one of the ways. Because if they are truly your friends, they will quietly pull you aside and explain the way more perfectly. It matters to them because you matter to them. Real friends don't let their friends walk around with broccoli in their teeth and somebody say, praise the Lord. Now, I want to be that kind of person for somebody else. Someone to whom the state of those around me is important. It matters because they matter. It matters that we don't let others walk around in ignorance. Somebody say, it matters. The year was 2002 and... Five-year-old Julian Hernandez, he was sitting in his mother's Alabama home, waiting to be taken to preschool. As usual, his parents were fighting in the kitchen. Julian was too young to understand it then, but this was part of the reason that he and his mother lived separately from his father, Bobby Hernandez. Bobby had agreed to pick up Julian and take him to preschool this day, and, and while things had been rocky between his parents for a long time, Julian's mother had no reason to mistrust Bobby. And so on this morning, he packed his son's baby blanket, his stuffed orca whale, and was on his way. Before they made it to preschool, however, Bobby drained all of his bank accounts, and he hit the road, taking little Julian with him. Bobby had left a letter explaining to his wife that he had taken the boy and was leaving the state. And Julian Hernandez was reported missing by his mother on August 28, 2002. Julian was lost. After driving for hours, Bobby Hernandez ended up in Cleveland, Ohio, and there he established new identities for both himself and his son. He was able to steal the identity of a man named Jonathan Mangina somehow, and he called his son JJ. And from there, Bobby, with this new alias, Jonathan, got a job in a Cleveland factory, and he made a new life for him and his son. Meanwhile, Julian's poor mother was back in Alabama, swallowed by grief. During my darkest moments, I considered suicide, she later said in a statement. Yet in all of the years of suffering and uncertainty, she never stopped searching for her lost son. She never stopped hoping because it mattered to her that Julian came home. It mattered to her that her son was found. And the case finally broke 13 years later when Julian, under his assumed name, tried to apply for college. It seemed that Bobby hadn't thought of everything after all. Julian's social security number, it didn't match his fake name. And it raised enough red flags for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to look into it a little bit more. And the end of the charade was now unavoidable. Once they found out who Julian really was, authorities went to his father, and Bobby Hernandez was arrested on November 2nd, 2015, in Cleveland, Ohio, while he was working a shift at the factory. Julian's mother, as you can imagine, was absolutely beside herself when the police called her and let her know that they'd finally found her son after 13 
15 long years. Over the past decade plus, she had been let down by many false leads and various close calls, but she knew that this time was different. And sure enough, around American Thanksgiving 2015, Julian traveled back to Alabama to meet his mother and her family. The lost was now found. And the striking part of the story to me, and the reason that I tell it this morning, is that while living with his father, Julian became a well-adjusted young man. He had a good life, despite the fact that he was a missing child, that he was lost. He was a straight-A student, an accomplished athlete. He was getting ready to go to college, taking steps to pursue his dreams, going about life, doing fairly well, but blissfully unaware that he was lost. Seemingly living the good life, but no idea that he was lost. I rise to this pulpit this morning to contribute what I feel the Lord has laid on my heart to this Atlantic Youth Convention 2021 to say something that maybe is not overly popular, but it's something that is necessary that we remember, and that is that people around us are lost, spiritually speaking. It's not politically correct, and it kind of sounds too negative, frankly, but identifying somebody as lost is the only hope that they ever have of being saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only reason that Julian Hernandez was found that November day in 2015 was because there was a mother and there were institutions in place that cared enough about Julian to never give up on him. They still considered him to be lost. If they would have casually said within themselves, ah, I'm sure Julian's out there, I'm sure he's doing fine. Had they taken him out of the missing child database and no longer identified this young man as lost, then Julian would have had no hope of ever being found. It took somebody holding up the standard and saying that it matters that we don't give up on Julian. It matters that lost people become found. And even though you would have looked at Julian on the surface and you would have thought he had a good life, the truth of the matter was that this young man was lost. When you observe your average classmate, when you look at your average neighbor, I think it's a lot like Julian. On the exterior, they seem fine. Relatively normal life, dressed fairly well. They're passing math class, or maybe not. But their lives are normal but in reality, they are lost and most likely completely unaware of their plight. And while it's not a popular sentiment, the truth is that we live in a world that is without Jesus Christ and on its way to a devil's hell should the church not intervene. And I think and I submit that one of the gravest and tragic mistakes that we could ever make as the church of Jesus Christ is to back up from, water down, or sugarcoat the fact that our world is lost. Perhaps even in some misguided attempt to soothe our own conscience, we could waver and we could ignore this vital reality. But if the church ever stops being willing to say that some are saved and some are lost, then we will fail our mission to evangelize this world and see people saved by Jesus Christ. 
Remember with me that Jesus had no such reservations about making statements such as these. He was willing to say that sheep would be separated from the goats in Matthew 25. He was willing to say that one would be taken and another left behind in Matthew 24. He was willing to say that there were five virgins who were wise and went into the marriage supper and five were foolish and were left outside when the door shut in front of them. Jesus had no such reservations. But the reason he didn't mind saying strong statements like this is because he had a mission. And his mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. And Jesus, in his mind, in his heart, he just knew he had to call it as it was. Some are saved, some will be lost. And so I rise this morning and I feel like I'm in good company with our Lord and with our Savior. And I kindly, with love, am not going to back down. There is a world out there that deserves a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and have their lives turned around and be spared from the wrath to come and live forever in peace with Jesus Christ. Let me remind us this morning that the church is not meant to be a self-help station. We are not called to give people good advice about how to live their best life now. We are a soul-saving station. We are called to preach good news to perishing people so that they might be spared from hell and live in heaven with Jesus. If you still believe that, can you clap your hands for a moment? I praise you, Jesus. We are called to preach the good news to perishing people. It matters that the lost become found. And they may be ignorant to this fact, and they may not even realize it, but I would put it this way. It matters to them. It matters to the world out there that there is a church in here that still believes lost people are worth reaching and preaching to. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world, Satan, he has blinded the minds of them which believe not, blinded the minds of unbelievers, lest the light of this glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them and remove the blindness. Let me paraphrase Paul this morning. The enemy is working overtime to keep our world unaware and ignorant to their sinful state. He has blinded their minds with ignorance. And he does this lest the light of the gospel should shine to them. Hear me today. The enemy wants nothing more than to keep unbelievers blissfully unaware, carrying on with life to the fact that they are lost. If our gospel be hid, it's hid to the blinded unbeliever. It matters to them out there. That there's a church willing to reach rich and poor. The up and the down and out. The young, the old. Those whose lives are a mess and even those who seem to have it all together, Julian. In whatever state, I pray that the light of the gospel will open blinded eyes in this end time generation through this generation of students, but everybody alive on the face of the earth. This world needs a church to come alongside and help them see, and it only happens by the gospel. Somebody say it matters. But if I could turn the coin to the other side, Everything I've said, of course, the Lord, I feel, has directed me to say, but I feel strongly 
God has led me to say in this next few moments. Because I believe that the devil not only seeks to blind the lost to the gospel, but believers also. He attacks on both sides. Because if Satan can somehow cause the end time church to preach a watered down or a different gospel, our message has no power and we help no one by default. In Nashville, Tennessee, during the first week of January 1996, more than 4,000 baseball coaches descended on the Opryland Hotel for their 52nd annual convention. And as they waited in line to register, some of the veteran coaches were buzzing about one speaker in particular. Over and over, you could hear, John Scalinos is here. Oh, man, that was worth every penny of my airfare. In 1996, Coach Scalinos, he was 78 years old and five years retired from a college coaching career that he had begun in 1948. He shuffled to the stage when it was his turn to speak, wearing dark polyester pants, a light blue shirt, and a string around his neck from which home plate hung. There's some really sharp things on the back side of this. You pray for me, okay? Yes, a full-sized, stark white home plate. After speaking for 25 minutes, not even mentioning the prop around his neck, Coach Scalinos appeared to notice the snickering among some of the coaches. You're probably all wondering why I'm wearing a home plate around my neck. Or maybe you think I escaped from a mental hospital, he said. No, I may be old, but I'm not crazy. The reason I stand before you today is to share with you baseball people what I've learned in my life, what I've learned about home plate in my 78 years. And then addressing the little league coaches, he asked a question. Do you know how wide home plate is in little league? And there's an awkward, confused pause in the audience. And finally, somebody offers 17 inches? More of a question than a statement, really. That's right, said Scalinos. Now, how many high school coaches do we have in the building this morning? And hands shot up. And, and he asked the question again, how wide is home plate in high school baseball? 17 inches, they said. A little more confident this time. You're right, Scalinos barked. And you college coaches, how wide is home plate in college? 17 inches, they said in unison. Any minor league coaches here, how wide is home plate in pro ball? 17 inches, right. And in the major leagues, how wide is home plate in the majors? 17 inches, they said, with the most confidence they'd had so far. 17 inches, he bellowed, his voice echoing off the walls. And what do they do with a big league pitcher who can't throw the ball over 17 inches? A pause. They send him down to the miners to Pawtucket until he finds his stuff again, he hollered as the room erupted in raucous laughter. But what they don't do is this. They don't say, ah, oh, that's okay, Jimmy. You can't hit a 17-inch target. We'll make it 18 inches or 19 inches. We'll make it 20 inches for you so that you have a better chance of hitting it. And if, if you can't hit that, you come back, you let us know, and we'll make it wider still, maybe 25 inches, no parameters. And then he paused. Coaches, what do we do when our best player shows up late to practice? What do we do when our team rules maybe forbid facial hair and a guy shows up unshaven? What if he gets caught drinking? Do we hold him accountable or do we change the rules to fit him? Do we widen home plate? And the chuckles gradually faded as 4,000 coaches grew quiet, the fog lifting as the old coach's message 
began to unfold. And I tell us today that one continuous warning we see in Scripture is a warning against false doctrine, especially for the end-time church. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own desires will, leap, will, will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Tell me what I want to hear, not what the Word of God tells me. 2 Peter 2 and 1, Peter said, But there shall be false teachers among you who privily, privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. 1 Timothy 4 and 1, Paul said to his protege, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, somebody say the last days, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed, falling prey, to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Paul said that there would be an end time church that exists. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the last days perilous times shall come. And there would be those that have a form of godliness. There would be the shell, the facade. It would look right. But they would deny the power. All form and no fire. And he said from such turn away. Jude charges us to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Paul warns us again in Ephesians to not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And even Jesus himself in Matthew 24 when his disciples came to him and they asked him what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the world. And Jesus prefaces every sign that he would say in that chapter with one sobering statement. Take heed that no man deceive you. He was talking about the moments, the days, the weeks, months, and years leading up to the rapture of the church. And the first thing he said is you make sure, you make very sure that you don't get deceived in the last days. And with so many consistent, repeated warnings about being led astray by false teaching in these last days, one, thing's, one thing becomes clear concerning sound Bible doctrine, and that is, it matters. Yes, in the 21st century, it matters. Yes, yes, with so many preaching so many different things, I've risen to this pulpit to say, it matters. Somebody shout it, it matters. It matters. The lost matter. Their souls matter, therefore sound doctrine matters because if we don't preach the right message, they will never have a hope of heaven. It matters. I would say it this way. It matters to God. It matters to God that we preach his word, the unadulterated word of God without fear or favor of man. And there's many things we could talk about this morning by way of sound Bible doctrine, the apostles' doctrine, but few false teachings, if any, are as dangerous as those that pertain to the gospel message and the new birth experience. Because you get this message wrong, and you end up offering no help whatsoever to those who hear you. No amount of care or concern for the lost does them any good if we don't have the proper antidote. If Paul would say in Galatians 1 verse 8, 
But even if we, if I, the apostle, the, the pastor, the church planner, whatever, that brought you the gospel, if I or even if an angel from heaven would ever preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let that person be under God's curse. And if that man of God would say that in the first century, this is a message that we must preach right. Paul said, let me be cursed, let me be lost if I ever mess up this all-important message. I have lived long enough. I'm just a young man. I'm still in my 20s for a few more weeks or months rather. But I have lived long enough to see people disregard biblical salvation, walk away from sound doctrine and preach what Paul talked about, another gospel. Perhaps for selfish motives to allow them to do more of the things that they felt like they wanted to do in their flesh. Or, or perhaps it was even in a, an attempt to be more inclusive to other believers. Biblical absolutes are stubborn things after all. Some have attempted to lower the bar, or maybe I would say it this way, widen the plate. Maybe even with pure intentions, but in doing so, they have stripped the gospel of its power and the hearers of hope. I understand this morning the desire to be ecumenical. Please hear my heart in everything I say today. I am not I'm not preaching condescendingly or arrogantly or aggressively, but you know, I understand the desire to be ecumenical and to be inclusive in Christendom, and I understand the desire to be seeker-friendly, but never at the expense of sound doctrine. Because some things will never change. The Word of God is forever settled in heaven, and I've come to remind us that home plate is 17 inches. And we can't widen the plate to accommodate somebody that wants to make it easier. You know, I, I, I love and respect people that maybe have had family members that see it differently and maybe they've already passed on, but we can't widen the plate to accommodate grandma's salvation or great grandma's salvation. The home plate is 17 inches and the gospel of Jesus Christ is still the death, the burial, and the resurrection death through repentance, burial through the watery grave of baptism, and resurrection power by the infilling of the Holy Ghost. There's still only one way to heaven, and Jesus said, I am that door. No man comes to the Father except through me. Somebody say it matters to God. You know, and talking about all this home plate stuff, you can be seated. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. I know this is not popular, but, but allow me to speak what I feel the Lord has led me to. Jesus is addressing disciples during this Sermon on the Mount. And I would submit that Jesus is not differentiating between sinners and saints, but Jesus is differentiating between two kinds of disciples. He said there's a narrow gate for certain disciples, and there's a wide and a broad road that leads to destruction. And he said many, this is Jesus, many enter through that way. But small is the gate. Narrow is the road that leads to life and few find it. Attempting to broaden the way of salvation helps no one. Because if we broaden the way of salvation, we end up with a broad road. And broad roads lead to destruction. And it's no wonder that Jesus followed this pointed 
preaching with this very sobering statement in verse 15. Beware of false prophets. As I have risen this morning to sound a rallying cry to this generation and tell all of us, those in my hearing, those online, those watching later, to tell us that there is still a narrow way that leads to life. And though it is narrow, it is not exclusive. It is available to whosoever will, whoever wants to walk it. It's available today. The door is still open. The rapture hasn't happened. And you can have life today. You can be saved by the new birth and the gospel. I echo Jesus, John 3, 5. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I echo Peter this morning when he said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I wonder if there's anybody that still believes there's only one way to heaven you got to repent of your sin repent of your will and your way turn from that be baptized in Jesus name and be filled with the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit with initial evidence of speaking in other tongues do I have any apostolics that will stand with me and say I still believe that it still matters it matters it matters the word still matters see this is a new birth be seated this is a new birth it's a message that our elders passed to us and they believed it was absolutely imperative and essential. I mentioned this Friday night, but we are in the presence of a great man of God, Brother John Min, this morning. And I can't tell you exactly how many times this happened. He would or somebody else could, so pardon me. But I know on several occasions that he and his sweet wife, Nyla Min, they would refinance their home, take out the equity in an effort to build a church building, so that there would be a place that could declare apostolic doctrine, the new birth, the apostles' doctrine in their day. That's the level of commitment to this message that our elders passed to us. They were so convinced that this was not just, you know, if you feel like it, but this is imperative to the point that it may have been the dead of winter and all the rivers or the lakes were frozen over, but that did not stop them. If they had no access to a tank or something of the sort, and if somebody got the revelation that they needed to be baptized in Jesus' name, guess what they would do? They would go and they would break through that ice. And they would baptize people in frigid waters. It was not comfortable and it was not convenient, but it was essential. It was the only way for people to be born again. So I'll move any mountain I have to. I'll move any inconvenience out of the way. Just let me get them down in the water in the only saving name of Jesus Christ. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. 
And I pray that these convictions will be no less in this generation than in those that passed it to us. Let those convictions for sound doctrine be as strong and stronger in the end time generation. And in all of you students, it still matters. Baptism today has become an optional add-on to your Christian experience. To many, baptism is nothing more than a going public for Jesus religious ceremony. Never mind the fact that there were private baptisms in the Bible that don't fit that model. One-on-one. Ethiopian eunuch, anybody? This is not the biblical precedent. This is not just something you do To celebrate, that's a part of it, but it's not going public for Jesus. It is essential. Not to some. Some suggest, well, it's a good idea and and you should do it. Let's uh, let others know that you're standing for Christ. Do it if you feel like it, but you're already saved. If, if you were to take in the book of Acts, and you study, we did this this past spring with our students, we studied all the conversions in the book of Acts, and I'll, I'll hasten in this point, but there were, there were big groups, 3,000, 5,000, but if you study, there are 10 specific conversions. You know, there's the Acts 2 believers in the upper room, and, and there's the Ethiopian eunuch, and there's the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and there's Cornelius, and there's 10. So we say 10 conversions. And if you were to chart this on a spreadsheet, you would see that there are six accounts of the 10 that mention faith. That they believed. Only six, not all ten. There's four that don't mention faith or belief. Three mention speaking in tongues, Acts 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. Only three of ten. The other seven don't mention speaking in tongues and as the Spirit comes. Only one mentions repentance. Acts chapter 2. Others it's implied, and maybe there's other chapters that call back and mention repentance, but really only one conversion experience mentions repentance. But can I tell you, you know, even though some would say, well, the, the Samaritans, they received the Spirit and they didn't speak in tongues, we would no more use that logic to nullify the importance of speaking with other tongues as we would looking at the four that don't mention faith and say, well, I guess you don't need faith to be saved. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, so if we're going to use this logic and employ this logic, it's faulty. Each conversion gives us a different snapshot and teaches us something different or, or, or builds on the Acts 2.38 message, its clearest and concisest form throughout the book of Acts. You, you follow me? But there is one element of salvation that God left no room for debate because every single conversion, all ten, mention baptism. Because if you are a believer, you ought to be baptized in Jesus' name. It's the only way to have your sins washed away. All ten. They were baptized, and it wasn't next year when grandma's in town. It was immediately that same day, whenever they got the revelation, that same hour, straightway, they went to the water, and they were baptized. Let me pause in my sermon to say, if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, gone down in water in Jesus' name, I'm telling you this morning, you don't have to leave this morning still carrying your sin. You don't have to leave this morning uncleansed. You can have your sins remitted and washed away. We have robes. We have towels. You don't need to get your clothes wet. It's convenient this morning. We're not breaking through ice, but it's still just as essential. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. 
You guys understand conjunctions, right? And is baptized, like these two go together, and the result is saved, salvation. But he that believeth not shall be damned. If you, if you get to belief and you say, I'm not going to believe, well, you've already de- determined your, your, your destiny and the road you're going to walk on. So he said, if you don't believe, then you're already damned, you're lost. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And if you didn't know any better, based on how many of you baptism today, you would think that Jesus said, he that believeth and is saved shall be baptized. If, if, if you feel like it, if, if you know, there's a crowd around and, and if the family's in town. And, but that is not what Jesus said. Because baptism is not an add-on. Baptism is not an expansion pack for your walk with God. This is how we come into covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Praise God. Coming, I hasten to a close. Let me just say a couple more things on this. In Acts chapter 19, the Bible says that it came to pass that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul the apostle, he passed through the upper coasts and he came to Ephesus and he found certain disciples there. And we know from verse number seven that he encounters 12 Ephesian believers. Somebody say believers. And he asks them some very pointed questions. And he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And so Paul, understanding the gospel message and understanding the typical protocol, somebody is, they believe and they repent of their sin and then they're baptized in Jesus' name for the washing away of sin. And, and, and that often culminates in them receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues, all that stuff. So, so understanding this protocol, he kind of backs up a step and he says, okay, verse three, unto what then were you baptized? You're believers. All believers are baptized. So, you know, I'm assuming you're baptized. Well, how were you baptized? Right? And they said, we were baptized unto John's baptism. And Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. It was powerful and beautiful in its time. But even John said to the people that they should believe on him which should come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. And he preaches the gospel to them that day. And the Bible says when they heard this, they were baptized again. The proper way. The only way. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Hear me today. Maybe you were baptized some other way. Maybe you were baptized as an infant. Maybe you were baptized in titles, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. But there's only power in the name of Jesus. And you can be re-baptized like these believers. Paul was so persuaded. He said, I know you had it once, but it wasn't the right way. You got to do it in the name of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there because when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came upon them and it happened just like it happens for every other believer. They spoke with tongues and they prophesied. His persuasion led him to ask two questions to these believers, and they were about receiving the Holy Ghost and how they were baptized. These are questions that I think every believer has the, should have the chance to hear. From somebody that's willing to come alongside, explain the way more perfectly, 
Let our convictions be no less in this generation. Everybody deserves a chance to be born of the water and spirit. If we really believe it matters that the lost are saved, then it matters that we preach what Jesus preached. Luke 24, repentance, remission of sins, the promise of the Father. What Peter preached on Pentecost, it matters. It matters. If we water down our message, it does no one any good. So many talk about accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, a phrase that does not occur in your Bible. And let me speak in love this morning and tell you that I am far more concerned with whether or not Jesus accepts me than whether I accept Jesus. When Jesus is culminating his Sermon on the Mount, we already talked about the narrow way and beware of false teachers. He's preaching to his disciples and this is chapter 7. This is the end of his sermon. He's coming in for a close and he preaches something that it's, it's, it's not overly palatable. It's kind of in your face, but, but he preached and he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father. It's not based on this preacher's opinion. It's not based on a manual you'll find in our denomination or organization. It's based on his word and what he wills. Not everyone who says Lord or names the name of Jesus will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say. On the broad road to destruction, many. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons, and we perform miracles in your names. In your name, excuse me. We were, we were believers, and, and I would add, they seem like high-functioning Christians. I mean, I mean, they're, they're doing things. I, I don't think I've ever cast out a demon. Have you? I don't know. These, these are high-functioning individuals. They're doing something for God. They name the name of Jesus. They believe. They have faith. But Jesus will look at them on judgment day and will tell them, play, tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Just, just hear my heart this morning. I believe the reason that Jesus would talk so plainly in Matthew chapter 7 to disciples is because he wanted to make sure that his disciples preached what actually helped people. Because if we water down our message, it does nobody any good. If we widen home plate, it does nobody any good. It, it still matters. And so I say what Paul said. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, continuing in doctrine, continuing in my word, you shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Sound doctrine saves souls. Sound doctrine saves souls. And if we still believe that the lost matter, then this ought to matter too. So we say it matters. I believe that I am standing in a room today full of people I think, I think, by and large, probably the vast majority, if not all, would say, yes, you know what? The lost matter. Lost souls matter. It matters to them. It matters. And furthermore, I believe that many here today would stand firm and say that sound apostolic doctrine matters. 
but I submit that it is not enough for these things to matter in general. It is not enough for these things to matter to someone else. It is not enough for, for these elements, these core tenets of our faith to be somewhere out in the spiritual ether that we know exist and we know are important. But it goes no further than that. It is not enough for the world and the word, lost and doctrine, to matter to our pastor, our youth pastor, and our parents alone. But somebody in this generation must rise up like the elders that came before us, our leaders that stand before us, watching for our souls. And you must say, it matters to me. Because if it does not become a personal conviction, then likewise we also lose by default. Who will pick up the baton in this generation and reach the world? Who will make it personal and boldly declare this apostolic message to our world without fear? It matters to me. Can you declare that right now? Point to yourself, it matters to me. In the Old Testament, in the time when Joshua and the people of Israel was, were settling in the promised land, God commanded Joshua to establish six cities of refuge. Cities of refuge, they were made as a provision for those guilty of manslaughter. If somebody had unintentionally killed another, it was very possible that the, quote, avenger of blood, a family member seeking to avenge the death of the deceased, that they could take the slayer's life despite their innocence. And so, so through Joshua and the people, God set up these havens of protection, the cities of refuge. And all the slayer had to do was make it to one of these cities. And legally speaking, the avenger of blood had no right to take the life of the slayer if they were within the walls of one of these six cities. And if they did, then they would be guilty of murder. Right? In Israel, there was the provision for if somebody murdered an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and they had the legal right in that culture in that day. If somebody was guilty of murder, then, then a family member could avenge the death of their family member and, and take the life of the guilty. But, but when innocence was involved, there, there was this provision because, because before the case could be taken to trial and their innocence actually proven, the, the avenger of blood could just, could just go for it and take their life. So, so these were made available for that interim period. These cities, they are a beautiful picture of the church today. Herein, we find refuge from our adversary and from hell. Aren't you thankful? Herein, we have hope. The cities of refuge, they were to be located in central places with three on each side of the Jordan River. So they were easy to reach from any place in the country. Wherever you were, it was no more than just one day's journey or about 32 miles to one of these cities. Some of these cities were even located high atop a mountain in order to make them even more easily visible from a distance. The roads leading to the cities of refuge, they were double the width, 52 feet roughly, of every other road in Israel, 26 feet, in order to make travel as easy as possible. They were carefully repaired every spring after the bad weather of the winter season. Valleys were raised. Hills were lowered. Bridges were built where needed. 
creating the shortest, fastest, and most direct route possible. At every crossroad, there was a sign that would point to refuge. And some writings even state that runners, skilled in the law of God, were stationed along the way to guide the fugitives to the place of safety. And if that avenger of blood began to gain on them, these runners could even turn around and fight off the enemy so the fugitive could get away. The cities of refuge, they were open to whosoever. The Israelite, the stranger, the sojourner. And the gates of these cities were always open and they were never locked. Otherwise, a fugitive might die at the hand of the avenger of blood while he was beating at the city gate seeking refuge. Now, to me, the question arises. Considering all the things that had to be fixed that were in disarray and disrepair, the question arises, who was it that was responsible for making sure that all of this was taken care of? Who was responsible to inspect the roadways and make necessary repairs? The answer is left somewhat to speculation, but some suggest that it was the ones already living in the city who were responsible. Those who at one point in the past had received refuge themselves and had stayed around. Every once in a while, the recipients of refuge had to go out and make sure the road wasn't grown over. That no tree limbs had fallen in the way. And if a signpost had been knocked down or turned the wrong way, it was erected and turned properly again. If the elements had washed out some of the earth along the road, repairs would be made. There was personal responsibility upon those who had already received refuge to ensure that refuge was available to someone else. They said, it matters to me. It matters to me that somebody else can make their way here and have what I have. It matters to me that nothing stands in the way of them getting to this place of safety and them getting to this place of refuge. It matters to me that somebody else can have the same refuge and the same hope and the same salvation that I have found. Who is responsible to ensure that this message of hope and this haven of refuge called the church is shared with our lost world? Who else but you? Who else but me? It must be personal because if it doesn't matter to me, if we are content to just know that somebody else cares, then those directly in my life and in my sphere will remain ignorant to their state of being lost. It matters to them that there's a church like that. It matters to God that we preach the right message. But at the end of the day, it must matter to me. In his time of running, David, stand with me. He's in the cave of Adullam. And it's one of the most difficult seasons of his life. And what he says in this verse, I feel, is so applicable. It's, it's not that he was seeking a city of refuge specifically, but, but nevertheless, David makes a powerful statement. He's on the run from a wicked king that is wrongfully trying to take his life. He did nothing to deserve the season he is in, but he makes this statement because he feels alone. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me, for no man cared for my soul. There's a refuge from despair in the church today. 
But refuge fails our world if no one cares, if no one says it matters to me. And so I wonder if there's a student, if there's a parent, if there's an elder saint of God, if there's a new guest that's with us this morning, it doesn't matter your stage in your walk with God, this truth is still applicable to you. There's some things that still matter in the 21st century. And I feel like God, I feel like the mantle of conviction for the lost and for his word is going to fall at this altar and in this house this morning. I wonder if you would step out of your seat because this is the cry of our world today. Refuge fails me. I can't find anybody that makes it personal. I can't find anybody that deeply cares. No man cares for my soul. But I'm telling you this morning, if we will let, if we will let this resonate in our spirit, and if we will let the conviction for sound doctrine for this apostolic gospel message, and if we will let a conviction for our lost world burden us once again, I'm telling you that those people can come out of their caves of misery. Those people can come out of the darkness into his marvelous light. But we must say it matters to me. It matters to me. I don't know if it matters to my friend in my youth group, but it matters to me. I don't know if it matters to my mom or dad that don't serve God, but it matters to me. Lift your hands all across this sanctuary. I wish you'd lift your voice and respond to the word of God. Come on, this is about the Lord just placing that burden upon you again. It's all right to weep in the presence of God. Come on, receive that in this moment. Because the convictions in this end time generation, they must not diminish from those that went on before us. They must be stronger. They must be resolved and resolute. It matters. (laughs) 